The Dub Lab Creative Cultivation Salon is happening on Saturday, March 23rd. This rare fundraiser event will feature special guests, live performances, and carefully curated DJ sets in the inspiring and creatively stimulating offices of Cargo Collective in Frogtown. More information will be coming to the airwaves soon. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dub Lab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dub Lab Radio Archives. Hello everybody. This is Stefan Biedermann, Deputy Consul General of Germany in Los Angeles. And it's a great honor to be on the microphone at DubLab, the hippest internet radio station in town. So for the next one hour, I'm going to play some music of the greatest bass player on earth. That's how he used to call himself. John Francis Pastorius III, called Jacko. And there's a possibility that he was actually right. To find out about that, we're going to play a lot of his music and we're going to talk to a distinguished guest, Mr. Robert Trujillo, a fabulous bass player in his own right. Hi, Robert. How are you doing this morning? Great. Busy. <laughs> I mean, why are we having this program today? Because there's a special reason. This Sunday will be a special day for all Jacko fans in this town and beyond. Robert, what is going to happen on Sunday? Well, Sunday night is um, going to be the, I would call it the world premiere of Jacko. And uh, long awaited. Um, it's going to be a party. Uh, I, I feel that this is a very special event. A lot of my friends um, who have been involved with this film will be there, and a lot of people who have been influenced by Jaco Pastorius on many different levels will also attend. So we're looking to have a great time at the most beautiful theater in Los Angeles and possibly anywhere in the U.S., and that would be the Ace Theater in downtown L.A. Wow, that sounds awesome. We will be talking about the event a little later. First, let's play some more music. This is from Jaco's first demo tape. Uh, he was 22 then, the Criteria Sessions, 1,974. So this track was Donna Lee, a bebop tune of Charlie Parker, played on the saxophone originally. I think until 1976, when Jaco's first album appeared on the market, which this track was the opener, nobody would have believed you can play this on a bass. That's true. Um, in fact, uh, as people will see in our film, Bobby Columbi, uh, the producer of Jaco's first um, solo LP, groundbreaking solo LP, he says that Jaco actually played that for him and uh, in the phrasing was that of a horn player and he had never ever heard anyone on a string instrument um, you know uh, in a sort of a dynamic way um, 
perform a track like that that way with that unique feel that Jaco was able to get so he was very impressed did you already play bass at that time and what did you think when you heard this stuff for the first time well it's interesting because um You know, growing up as a kid, I uh, had a lot of music around me because I had young parents. And uh, the the first instrument I saw played, uh, actually physically in front of me, was the the flamenco guitar because my father was sort of a hobby guitar player, and that's what he played. He played flamenco. We were ha listening to sabicas and uh, and a lot of this kind of music in the house. So, th I I guess. In terms of the fingering of a stringed instrument, that's what I remember seeing, uh, not with a pick, seeing it be played with the fingers. And that's why I uh, sort of adopted that style of finger technique with the bass. Now, getting into the instrument of the bass, there was a certain point in time in the 70s where I realized that, hey, it is the bass guitar that is moving me. And, and, and it was the groove and the funk That really, really took me to another level um, in terms of um, my love for uh, for the instrument and my love for music that was uh, sort of dominated by that. Um, I realized that it was the drums and the bass that were really exciting to me. Yeah, and also the years where bass playing was really on the brink of being revolutionized. The, the Jaco track that hit me first is the one that he played on the second album with Weather Report. Also in 76, it's called Teen Town. No, that's not Teen Town. It's a beautiful song, though. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody who has ever touched an electric bass in her, his or her life, the question is, how can you play so fast? And at the same time, which such light touch completely unstressed, almost flying over the fretboard? Um, Robert, can you explain how this works? I can't explain it. It's, uh, he's, he's an alien, I think. I think he comes from a, another planet. And... Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, hard work, practice. I mean, Jocko worked hard, you know. Um, I'm really great friends with his son, Johnny Pastorius. I've been friends with him for many, many years. And he says that his dad, it didn't just sort of happen like like that, you know. He didn't have to, where he didn't have to work for it. I mean, there's some people who have this talent and they don't kind of have to work as hard as other people. It's just that I've seen it in, in some musician friends of mine. And a lot of those guys aren't, don't have as much drive and passion. But Jocko really worked hard to, you know, hone in on those skills and that technique and to develop it, you know, 12 hours a day, nonstop, you know, almost like, like an addiction to, uh, to, to, to his instrument and, and, and a really strong work ethic. Even in athletics, you know, he was a great athlete. He was um, very talented on a lot of levels, so he was just a very hard worker. Mm. Um, one other dimension Jaco developed for the first time was to play these harmonics, the overtones. Right. I mean, you touch the strings with your left hand very slightly, for those who do not play bass here, and right. you have to touch the strings at very precise points. Right, right, right. Actually, yeah, you could bring that, that bass in here if you want. I mean, I don't have to plug it in. I can get the effect right here. So okay. I'll, I'll show you that. Well, harmonics it, um, generally have been used for uh, tuning an, an instrument, you know, a stringed instrument. And, um, and so I don't have an amp here, but like, like, you know, you know, 
you know, it's like a, you could hit chords, you know. Those are harmonics. So you would tune it, you would tune your, your bass to like, you know, so. You know, so check it out. That's not tuned in. So. Oh, sorry for that. So then you're tuning here. Oh, yeah. There you go. Or, or like say, that's not tuned, right? But then you go, oh, that's tuned. Okay. That's tuned. So there you go. I'm trying to play and talk to you. And <laughs> Anyway, those are harmonics. And what they are is they're originally... I don't think there had been any compositions that were actually written and created around the harmonic. It was always sort of focused on and used for tuning. And when Jocko heard the harmonics, it, it spoke to him. He, he was like, well, they're notes. Why can't there be chords in that? Why can't there be melody in that? You know? And uh, when I first heard this composition, which was incredible, called Portrait of Tracy, that really changed my life because... Suddenly you had uh, th these, these notes that were used for tuning became compositional. And um, what was so great about that partic this particular song, which I assume you're going to play here shortly, <laughs> is that uh, it, it's kind of like back in, in 1979, I think it was, when I first heard Van Halen, uh, Eddie Van Halen from the band Van Halen, of course, he played a song called Eruption. And it was really a solo piece. And he did this thing called a hammer-on. And I was like, what is that? What kind of <laughs> instrument is that? I thought it was a synthesizer. Same effect I got with Jocko in Portrait of Tracy. I was like, what instrument is that? Because I can't figure this out. So anyway, that's, you know, he, he, he made something really beautiful out of a, a technique or a, 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 a note, uh, notes off the fretboard, or I don't even know how to explain it it's just these glassy beautiful glistening notes he created a composition out of it that's pretty historical so let's listen to portrait of tracy on the first record so jaco played with weather report from 1976 to 82 um, robert in your documentary you show some great live footage of Weather Report from the late 70s. That was a great band, was it? Have you ever seen them live? Yes, I saw Weather Report live twice. Um, I saw Jocko perform four times, and I was very fortunate. The first time I saw him play in 1979 was, was really amazing because <clears throat> it was at one of my favorite venues, which is now sort of uh, just... Uh, It's, a, it's not quite ruins yet. It's still intact, but it just sits there. It's called the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And um, it's one block from the beach, which is great because it's where I grew up surfing and skateboarding and, and all that kind of stuff that you do when you grow up in Southern California. And Jocko actually had the same sort of um, existence, but on the East Coast growing up in South Florida and, uh, and spending a lot of time body surfing and playing frisbee and all that so um so i always think that that show for me was was completely and and uh and incredibly impactful to my the rest of my life as a creative individual because that's when i saw this instrument the bass become 
that instrument that was at the forefront and uh, and not just the guy standing in the back with the drummer hidden who you never recognize you know he he really controlled the audience that night there were so many different types of people I mean I saw friends of mine that were like kind of skateboarders and those characters and that tribe from Venice Beach but then I saw a lot of these jazz characters and these heavy metal people and these punk rockers so it's very diverse audience and um you know, I remember him putting his bass on stage and then sliding into it like he was sliding into home plate and, you know, American baseball. We have, you know, you, you know, you slide into the bases and that's what Jocko did. He was a huge baseball fan. So the energy and the excitement uh, in, in the room that night was crazy. I remember uh, John Belushi was there and at the time Saturday Night Live was really, really a, a big deal. So he was you know, I, what I would imagine, he was probably holding court and having a great time and, and you know, just really uh, embracing the energy of the room that night and controlling it, too. So that was a life changer for me. But that would have been Weather Report, yes. Mm-hmm. I also saw him at the, at the Hollywood Bowl the next year. Uh, Flea was at that show, too, from what I understand. He talks about that being a memorable experience for him uh, in our film. Yeah. Um, one of the major topics in the film is the relationship between Jaco and Joe Savinul and uh, how it worked and how it deteriorated over the years. Could you say something about that? Well, you know, in a lot of situations, uh, creatively, historically, and I mean on any level, you know, it doesn't even have to be just in music, you, you have this brilliant connection. And oftentimes there's maybe an individual that you look up to and it's just, wow, you know, there's such a powerful person. Joe was a very powerful person. He was a, also a musical genius. And, um, you know, he, he came up with Cannonball Adderley. And I mean, he, he's, he's on bitches brew, you know, I mean, he, what more can you ask for, you know, to be a part of that contingent? Um, by the way, bitches brew is Miles Davis's uh, groundbreaking, uh, you know, <laughs> batch of songs. And, uh, it, it, in, he's a very powerful old school individual who, um, you know, who really, really came up the hard way. I mean, he, he, his his life w- was was no easy sort of uh, bed of roses, you know. So he he had a hard edge, very hardworking man, and uh, Jocko really looked up to him, almost like a father figure. So he would always embrace um, Joe's positive words or negative words, you know. Either way, you look at it, and um, and I think that. Jocko at the same time had a lot of confidence in what he was doing and uh, he was very strong-willed as well. So he had these two guys that were very competitive, strong-willed, hard-working, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that quality that's very hard-working on all fronts. Um, they play ping-pong and even playing ping-pong, they were incredibly competitive. Joni Mitchell tells stories about how just every stroke with the paddle was like, you know, Wimbledon, you know, uh, a classic Wimbledon match or anything, backhands, forehands. It was a very competitive nature, and they took that to the stage even, where it was competitive on stage. So I would imagine um, there was a lot of emotions for Jocko uh, connected to... Um, his, you know, his sort of master 
idol, the person he looked up to the most, musical genius in Joe Zawinul. And that, you know, over time probably created a lot of tension within their relationship within the band and everything. But that happens in life all the time. You know, you uh, you look up to somebody mm. and... Um, at a certain point, things change, and sometimes sure. it, it 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 tears your heart out, and uh, and it can be a sad thing. And there's other times where you know when you when you get you know like with your father, sometimes you know when he he gives you that that sign of approval or he he you know that affection that affectionate moment in anything you do, you're just like on top of the world. And I think that meant a lot to Jocko in their relationship and. Uh, coming up with Joe for mm. a, a long time. So there's a, there's a lot of energy there, and um, we share some of that in the film. So here we have a track from the last album that the both did together, Weather Report. Um, the album was also called Weather Report, 1982, and the track is called Dara Factor 2. That was a track from 1982, um, That was perhaps the peak of Jaco's career. He was offered a second solo album by Warner Brothers. Um, what went wrong with that album? I don't think... Me personally, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, the uh, word of mouth album is absolutely incredible. And I think a lot of people didn't understand it. At that time, jazz, rock, people called it fusion, but that music was, was very popular. Um, it was an exciting time for that music, but labels, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they at times had their hand in a lot of things, and they tried to have their hand in things creatively, obviously on a business level, so it sort of revolved around that. And Jocko, you know, he didn't make a one-dimensional album, and... Um, I think that this album confused the label and they had a problem with it and he had a problem with them having a problem with it and so on and so on and there's a lot of stories that revolve around the energy of that album and the energy on the business side too and it was a very difficult time I think for him I, I saw that tour actually I, I went to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion And I actually saw the word of mouth big band. And yeah, it was very different. It was very different than Weather Report. It, I can on, honestly say when I saw it live, I didn't quite understand it because I was used to seeing him with a smaller, you know, uh, band. Um, the focus was, 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 you know, was different. <clears throat> His role in that band, I felt, was different. And with word of mouth, it was really about the compositions and, and, um, I appreciate that much more now, you know, I, I really do. So sometimes I think with Jocko's music, in any music, you know, you realize years later how magnificent that is. You don't maybe, you don't always get every bit of it. And then later on in life, you go, man, I get it. Like Crisis, for instance, it's like, mm -hmm. what a great song. It's like, that was ahead of its time, you know? He was doing something with the instrument at that time with that musical piece that was that was way ahead you only got that from people like you know zappa was doing that you know mm -hmm. you know there's been even you know, punk bands do that we're doing that too you can't quite gauge it you know and all of a sudden it goes yeah i get it you know and you know it's it, it 
That's what I love about him. He's a daredevil. In the film, somebody says that this crisis, this track, uh, was considered by the record company as a killer. People said, if people start listening to that song, they won't listen to anything else. So you cannot start with that track. Well, you know what? That is what is so punk about Jocko. You know, you go against the grain, you know. You take chances, you know. You stir it up, you know, and uh, get people, you know, get people to think, um, challenge people. And I believe that that is really a, a track that's slapping people in the face, you know. Get ready, you're about to go on a journey, my journey, and that is crisis. So here we go, let's play oh, Jocko's, Jocko's Journey. <laughs> So there was Crisis from the Word of Mouth album, a clear masterpiece, that's what I think. Um, in the film, um, after 82, there are some irritating scenes where we see Jaco behaving strangely, erratically, and uh, there are stories that on stage he sometimes was a problem with, for the other musicians. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, Well, I think that would tie into what we were talking about earlier. I touched on the, the fact that um, Jocko had a, a, con a condition called his bipolar. I mean, some people call it bipolar syndrome, bipolar disorder. Um, and that would sort of combine with the possibility of, of alcohol or whatever would escalate certain um, types of mood swings. Um, And it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to talk about because who knows what was going on in his head or his discontent could have been with, with um, the industry or whatever was going on or creatively. Um, so it's, it's a little bit complicated. But, yeah, around that time, there were things that were starting to show. And uh, I don't think people really understood what was going on in him and... That's the other thing is at that time, people didn't understand what that was, what was going on. You know, nowadays there's a better understanding. That's why when I see people, you know, when I see homeless people, I, 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 uh, I have a, I, I'm less judgmental, let's say, you know, because a lot of times there's, there's other things going on. You can't just judge a person because of the way they look or, 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 or um, what's you know you you have to have an understanding that there might be things going on mentally. It's a little deeper than that. So this was happening with Jocko, and uh, and people didn't quite understand. You know, it's easy to say, oh, that guy's just a weird guy, or he's just strange. But obviously, um, um, there was more, much more going on. I had an encounter with Jocko actually in 1985. If I can talk about it, yes, please. Um, I was at a guitar show. In uh, Los Angeles, um, it was actually in Hollywood. It was the Los Angeles Guitar Show, and it was at the Merlin Hotel in uh, in Hollywood, which is now, I believe, like a Holiday Inn Ex Express or Best Western or something <laughs> like that. But I would call it kind of a poor man. I mean, no disrespect, but I would call it sort of a poor man's NAM show. And uh, and I was there, you know, I was a young musician. Um, <clears throat> And each room, each hotel room was, was sort of designated as a, like a, a maybe 
um, a showcase uh, kind of a, a, um, a showcase room for a particular product or a guitar company or an amp company or whatever. And um, so it was kind of kind of unusual like that. You know, it was, it was very strange at the time. But I was in one room and I heard this very loud, thunderous. I didn't even know it was a bass. It sounded like an earthquake. It was just... <laughs> and the windows were shaking and the floor was shaking. And um, it was obviously somebody had cranked the amp all the way. You know, if there was if there was an 11, like in Spinal Tap, this was like a 13. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> and um, I was the closest to the room where this was coming from, this noise. So I walked in there and it was Jocko. And he was there. It was just him and like the rep from that particular company in that room. I imagine it was a bass company because the guy was handing him a couple of basses. And I took I took a knee. I, I didn't even say anything. I just kind of uh, took a knee about ten feet from him or less. And he then he he turned it down and he started playing. You know the way he would normally play, which is really mm. beautiful. And um, and then the room filled up. It was like completely filled up. Everybody was very excited as I was. And um, and then he started playing Jerry Jamat quotes. You know, his, uh, some quotes from his own music. And um, and he played for a few minutes and he looked at everybody like he looked us all in the eye. He didn't smile. I mean, it was very serious. And he had these piercing um, eyes, you know, and he kind of looked at us and it was like he was sizing us up <laughs> like he could kick our ass or something like, yeah, that's right. I'm here and I can I can kick your ass. I might do it. You know, <laughs> it's like kind of but it was really exciting. And um and then his girlfriend at the time walked in, beautiful woman, and uh, she reminded me of uh, kind of a surfer girl or something. And uh, and she had a couple cans of beer in her pocket. I remember she had like a kind of a hoodie, like a o- o- uh, OP, it was like a surf brand. And um, and she just said, "Come on, Jocko, let's go." And then you know she was bored with it. She she was unimpressed with the whole thing of us, <laughs> us all being there in awe. And um, and he just basically got up, handed the guy the bass, and he just walked out of the room and left left wow. us all there. It did not say a word. It was it was amazing, um, you know, and didn't even smile. I wow. mean, but it was still great, you know. Um, I had I remember one of my bass teachers, a guy called uh, Larry Seymour, who uh, you know when I was a uh, I don't know I was probably about. 17 years old he was one of my teachers um he actually ended up playing with billy idol for a while but larry larry was there and i hadn't seen larry in a couple of years and i look across the room and i say oh there's my old teacher larry and we're like thumbs up i called larry a couple of years ago because i wanted to ask him about that day because he was the only other guy that i remember that i knew i knew there was other you know there was obviously a whole bunch of people there and maybe some of them i knew but i remember him specifically because uh, we had, you know, he was my teacher. And, yeah, he was telling me, you know, he remembers as well that Jocko was not in the best shape at that time. You know, he he, uh, he obviously, there was a lot of rumors around that time, too, that he had been doing crazy things. And, um, you know, he, he seemed he seemed fine when I saw him. You know, he, 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 he didn't look 
bad or anything. He wasn't playing bad. He was playing great, you know, but uh, there were a lot of rumors around that time. And that's also why it was a surprise to see him mm. because um, you had heard the rumors and, and it, you know, you're also talking about a time when there wasn't the internet. The internet was not there. You didn't have the internet. So it was all rumors, you know, everything was sort of based on yeah. rumors. That was the thing when I first discovered Jocko, it was again, rumors, you know, it was like, mm. who's this guy everyone's talking about? I heard about Stanley Clark, you know, and because uh, fusion was so big and, and bass was really becoming a prominent instrument in the, in the late seventies. So when Jocko came on, it was like, there's this guy called Jocko. He looks crazy. I mean, he looks so cool, you know, and you saw pictures of him and, you know, like the, 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 the photo from uh, heavy weather, you're just going, wow, this guy's got long hair. His eyes are crazy. This guy's cool. He's my hero. <laughs> he was already your hero before you heard, heard him play. And, um, yeah. So, you know, anyway, mm. I, yeah. I was going through a lot of music for preparing this and mm -hmm. I was looking for, um, let's say one of the moments where he uh, cranked up his, his amp. Mm -hmm. um, of course, obviously, there's not so much documented, but there is a, a bootleg with Rashid Ali, the drummer. Uh, it was recorded for French radio. And in one piece, it's called Purple Haze. Obviously, um, he does exactly what Robert described. Um, let's listen into that. I think that's brilliant. I mean, for me, uh, the, uh, you know, kicking in the distortion, I mean, that, that's, that's a metal moment, you know. Uh, 
again, showing respect and love for Jimi Hendrix and then throwing in a sly in the family stone, a little melodic quote. You know, he was always, he was like a sponge, so he was embracing all these wonderful melodies and all these grooves and, and, you know, different styles, and he was taking it all in. He would do a Frank Sinatra quote or, you know, Bach, you know, classical. So he's bringing all that in and, and releasing it um, in his solo. That would have been, I would imagine, that was a, 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 a slang moment, we call it, because Jocko had a, a composition, a bass solo composition called Slang. And I would imagine that's what it is, because I can hear the repeating that he had sort of a, a, a repeat rhythmic phrase that he would solo over. And um, in Bill Mikowski, um the author of, uh, of Jocko's uh, um, biography, mm-hmm. yeah, he, yeah. Good, good guy, great guy, good friend. Um, he, he basically says that, you know, the bass, the instrument was like... When he played slang, it was like he was sitting on the couch and he was revealing his inner, whatever was going on inside of him, his emotions, everything, it was all coming out through his instrument during that solo. So you would hear the distortion. You would hear all this because it's just coming out of that instrument. You know. So I like that. Again, I say <laughs> punk, you know. <laughs> he was a punk, <laughs> a punk rocker. Yeah. Coming back to your film, um, one of the things that impressed me very much is um, the interviews that you took with Joni Mitchell. I suppose it was not very easy to get her, right? No, it took us four years. And um, what I want to say is that in this nearly six-year journey, we had a lot of um, like miraculous moments, very serendipitous sort of journey in this film. And um, and Joni was, was definitely... A miracle. I, I met her at a party. Um, a, uh, it was probably a year and a half ago. Yeah, about a year and a half ago. I met her at a party, and um, I we had tried to reach out to her for n- nearly four years, and there was nothing. You know, she. There was. I mean, I. I don't even know where to start with that. <clears throat> she was unreachable, mm. and I randomly meet her at a party, and it was. It was an industry party, and I was there with my wife and uh, my guitar player. Actually, I was there with the Metallica guys. And um, Kirk, my guitar player in Metallica, he and I, you know, were both huge Joni Mitchell fans. And and I was like, wow, there's Joni. I wasn't even thinking about the film. I was just wanted to say hi to her, you know. It was like there was that fan fan moment, you know. And he goes, yeah, Let's go say hi to her. So we actually went to her table. And, of course, at the table, you've got Jane Fonda and you've got, <laughs> you know, all these legends. And um, and she wasn't there. But uh, her friend, who I like, I, I call him a date, but I guess he's really her friend, a guy called Matt Lee, who is a musician from the west side of Los Angeles. And, and Matt and I know a lot of the same people. And uh, and he, he loves Metallica. So... You know, I asked him, I said, you know, we'd really love to meet Joni. We're, uh, Kirk and I are musicians. You know, we play in a band. You know, we play in Metallica. And, and he goes, oh, I love Metallica. Joni, you know, I, I'm sure she'd love to meet you. So it took about a half hour to find Joni. At that point, um, you know, it, it, it took a little too long to find her. So we went to, to go get our car, and we're waiting for our vehicle. 
And I'm just like, man, I got to at least say hi to her, you know? Oh. And so I, I told my wife that I had to go to the bathroom. So I went back in, in the venue. Yeah, I did have to go to the bathroom. But anyway, I ended up seeing her at that moment. And then we started talking. And I said, I want to introduce you to my wife. And I want to introduce you to Kirk, you know, my guitar player and his wife. So then we ended up hanging out for like a half hour and just really having great conversation and then right at the end of the conversation i i told her that i was um making uh, this film about jocko but i didn't say you know we'd love to have you on board or anything like that it just mm. that's all i said and then matt lee actually her friend um he uh texted me a photo of that we had taken together because i didn't have it and he was like here i wanted to Get, get you this photo with Joni and by the way she really really thought you were cool and and uh, we should all get together sometime and so I I I had to go on tour I believe and when I got back from tour we got together you know we had um, you know dinner and then um, a couple other times we got together and and, uh, and hung out hung out at her place and um, and we became friends and then finally probably about I don't know, five or six months in, she saw the trailer that we had put together at the time, and she really loved it. And um, she agreed to uh, to talk about Jocko. And that's when we actually talked about Jocko. So it took a few months. And then finally, you know, I, 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 I just think she's a wonderful human being. And, and, um, and again, one of the most remarkable artists you know, um, in our lifetime. So, so let's have a track where Please, Jocko yes. played with her. I think yeah. some of the best music ever made. Absolutely. I want to say that Jocko was an incredible collaborator. And Absolutely. with Joni Mitchell, he didn't really know much about her. I'm telling you the truth. He did not know much about her. I've heard this from his brother, Greg. And he just loved to collaborate with people and make music. And this is one of those moments where uh, it was just an incredible moment in musical history. And, you know, you can hear the signature and what he brings to a collaborative moment with anybody. And this is super special. So I always like to turn people on to that music. So this is from that famous concert in Santa Barbara, 1979, on the record Shadows and Light. The drug, the dry cleaners from Des Moines. I'm down to roll it times. I'm stalking the slot that's hot. I keep hearing bells all around me. Jingle in the lucky jackpots They keep you tantalized They keep you reaching for your wallet here in fool's paradise I talked to a cat from Des Moines In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.